0: My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults, for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So there will always be others that see it differently. And I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime.
2: Once they finished lunch, they all came into a classroom and told them the truth of what had happened and that they'd lost their friend that day. It was probably one of the most horrific things I've ever had to do.
0: Helen Rose... Had only been a Queensland cop for around three years when she attended an incident which would affect the rest of her life and change everything. I'll let her tell the story because it is beyond the comprehension of just about anyone out there. It's yet another insight into the responsibilities of police and dealing with human behaviours that many only see on the TV or in a movie. But it's not TV, it's not a movie. In the policing world, it's reality. And it was Helen's reality. You know, sometimes our brains just say enough is enough. Helen went on to hold several roles, different roles in Queensland Police, including an intelligence analyst like our friend H that we had uh, we spoke to last week. But Helen this week, she was in the world of undercover operations. She assisted undercover operatives like uh, Keith Banks, who we spoke to in Episode 6. But the incident that Helen is going to tell us about today, it's never left her, no matter how she's tried and what she did. And when you hear what she went through, you'll understand. It wasn't until years later in 2008 when Helen was diagnosed with PTSD that everything started to make sense although she's had her moments and quite a few, in fact, but she's used it as a stepping stone to discovering another world outside of policing where she's now happier and more confident than she can remember. My point here being that Helen is testament to the fact that PTSD doesn't have to be a life sentence. I've said many times, yeah, it's tough and, yes, your world does change, but there is another world out there just as fulfilling and inspiring, but okay, maybe not quite as exciting. (laughs) Um, Helen has embarked on a new business venture as a life coach, and I love the name, it's called Mental Mentor, and I couldn't think of a better person to talk you through and help in some of those curveballs that life throws at us than someone who's lived it like Helen. She's also been the driving force, pardon the pun, (laughs) behind... Building an app for PTSD. It's brilliant, but it's still in its early stages. So I'm about to uh, um, thank Helen and um, introduce her, but can we just keep in mind that today uh, we're going to be talking about the murder of a child? Um, It won't be for everyone, and I just ask to consider if it's right for you, but always remember. Lifeline Beyond Blue, etc., is uh, just a phone call away. So, uh, thank you for your time, Helen. And uh, we've finally made it. We've tried to do this many, many times, and we have. (laughs) Woohoo!
2: Yeah, we have well. more. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure.
2: It's great to be.
0: Yes, um, it's great to have you on board, Helen. Uh yes, we've tried so many times. Helen was in the Northern Territory and we tried a couple of times up there and anyway, you've you've discovered Adelaide. How do you like Adelaide?
2: Uh it's cold. <laughs> it's cold. No, I love Adelaide. Um it's uh, No, it's good. It's um, a good stepping stone and um, Darwin was great and I think like a lot of people, the Northern Territory holds a special place in people's hearts and it was certainly a place that um, finished my healing for me. Yeah.
0: Uh, anything would be cold compared to Darwin. Uh, how cold is it today?
2: Um, oh, I don't know, maybe about 13 degrees wet. I've got four layers on, <laughs> so it's been a bit of an.
0: Yeah, you've probably got the heater on, and you've probably it's been a bit of a novelty. You're just, <laughs> I bet it is. I bet it is. So, Helen, um, can you tell us about why you joined the Queensland Police Service and when? Just give us a bit of background.
2: Sure. Um, when I was eighteen, I wanted to join join the police. But um, at that time, when we were a female or I guess even a male, they had um, physical restrictions. Um, so you had to be 165 centimetres, 65 kilos, and you had 20-20 vision. And um, I could get my eyes fixed and I could put weight on, but lo and behold... I could not grow two centimeters, so <laughs> um, I couldn't meet. The, I couldn't meet the cut as much as I'd love to. I couldn't do it, and um, and I walked away from it. So and I went off on um, a different tangent. And then uh, when I was older, I finished a human resource degree, and my I'd had children then, and who were younger, and um, and they changed, and I was in Queensland. I'd moved to Queensland with my then husband and, um, and all the dimensions of the attributes that you had to have as a police officer had changed and I could get in and um, trained myself up in my fitness and, and yeah, got in. Um, it was always something that interested me. Um, I always was had that community feel and keen to help people and, and be involved and, um, and, yeah, in retrospect, I loved every minute of it. You've just made me
0: very jealous then. You just said that you had to put weight on. You could you could put weight on to try and get to your 65kg. There's not many women I know that could say that, Helen. <laughs>
2: you are talking about when I was 18, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose, yeah.
2: Today wouldn't be a problem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm hearing you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what was it that you loved about policing? You said you'd always wanted to join. What was it you loved?
2: Um As a member I loved the challenge. or um, well, when I was at once I became an intelligence analyst, I loved the challenge. Um, and working, you know, as part of these teams so closely together. Um, and and even out on the road. I think it's a camaraderie and it's a working relationship really like no other, Um, you know, spending eight hours with someone and some days are really good and, and some days are really bad. Um, And you support people through that. And it really is a really different kind of friendship because everybody sees you at your worst and sometimes they see you at your absolute brilliant best. Um, And, I was also a doctor cop and did those community um, roles like Neighbourhood Watch as well. And, um, yeah, just really enjoyed that interaction that was a lot more positive and not so, I guess, um, policing, so Mm. to speak. Mm.
0: I must admit, when you spend eight hours with somebody, let's say in a div van, it's not just the eight hours you spend with them, but it's the jobs that you go to that a lot of them can affect you and it's very, you talk about those jobs and you share a lot of um, emotion, yeah, you share a lot of emotions in a divan, don't you, about how you, what you've just experienced, what you've seen, um, the people that were involved. It is, um, it, it brings you, It's a real connection, isn't it?
2: It is, Narelle. Um, I think, you know, just days, I I still, you know, some days you just are really clear, you know, like the ace of spades, a day where we had to take a child from one parent and hand it over to another under a court order and and things like that Um, or delivering a death message. Um, It's just something, I guess, that just doesn't leave you like those tough times and you might... You know, just stop for five minutes before you go to the next job, just so you both, you know, reset and get yourself together.
0: Yeah, you do a lot of debriefing. I think the best debriefing that I've ever had is in the car with my colleague to a job that I've just been to, rather than sitting around in a room, debriefing with, say, the braid, debriefing with the psychologists, um, debriefing with really probably a lot of strangers to debrief there's nothing like a debrief with your colleague that and somebody that has just been to the same job. Um, yeah, it, it brings you very close.
2: Yeah, it does. Or even those times where you've got to run and jump over a fence <laughs> and you're coughing up alone. Yeah, no, and and it does. Um, I think because the only person you've got to back you up and, and to to look out for you is is that person in the car um, ultimately Um, and sometimes there's more than one car that that comes to help you but when it comes down to it, it, it's just you and your partner on the day. Yeah, I've got to say I never jump too many
0: fences Helen. That wasn't one of my strong points.
2: I, I should I should reframe that. <laughs> it was more more like a um, like a little piggy trying to haul herself over <laughs> <you>. <laughs> to, to get to the other side. I certainly didn't jump. <laughs> you
0: know, the crooks would always get away when if I had to jump a fence or I'd have to get somebody else to help me. Oh, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Anyway, look, Helen. Um, I think if you feel okay. I think we might go to uh, the incident that changed your world. How do you feel about telling us about that? Could you, yeah, if you if you get if you start to get through it and you don't go too well or you're feeling like you need a break, you tell me. But can you tell us what happened? Yeah,
2: not a, not a problem. I'm happy to share. Um, it was a day. I think it was even today. I get blurred whether it's two thousand and five or two thousand and six, and. I'd started my shift, I was working a a 6am shift and um, got in early and as usual, the boss is always chatty and my partner was organising his transfer on the phone and the phone at the station rang and I answered the phone and um, I immediately, um, the voice was familiar, I'd spoken to the voice before and the voice on the end of the line Um, because at that time my married name was very (laughs) long and difficult to pronounce, so I used to call myself Constable Helen and that's how I answered the phone. And when I did, the voice on the end of the phone just said, Constable Helen, I've got to come quick and um, and I've done something bad. And so I tried to get, um, it was a female voice, to tell me her name but she couldn't. She just kept saying, come quick. So I managed to get her address out of her. But immediately it's just one of those gut instinct things that I think everybody gets when, you know, it's just not right. And um, and she gave me the address, which was, again, familiar, but I just couldn't place it at the time. So I, I grabbed my partner and we both grabbed our bags and bolted out the door and, and I told my boss that, the woman on the end of the phone had told me that she'd stabbed her daughter, and um, we drove out. I drove. I think it's the fastest I've ever driven, and um, the boys would be proud of me. I think I cornered the street at about 130 to get to go to the house. Um, on the way, we ran comms on the mobile phone and um, provided the address, and they came back and, and told me who it was at the address, and um, I immediately knew that the girl that the mother had spoken about was actually my daughter's best friend. I turned up and um, the mum was standing in the doorway, and it's one of those things like, is it a knife? It's a big knife. It was a decent, really decent stainless steel kitchen knife the mother was holding, the front door was open. And she had minor lacerations to her um wrist and chest, and um she wouldn't she was a little bit babbling and coherent and so I just ran through the house to find the girl, and um ran up the stairs and she was lying on the bed. Um, and all I can recall was like little skewer marks in her. The bottom line was the knife was so sharp, um, her skin had kind of congealed back in from the stab wounds. Ultimately, she'd been stabbed 28 times and um, from the coroner's report in retrospect, uh, she'd woken up. It had started while she was asleep and she'd woken up and tried to fight her mum off. A major part of the stab wounds were defence wounds. I didn't know at the time, but my partner had was downstairs and had the ambulance had rung the home, and and it goes to show the chaos that goes on, and I guess it's organised chaos that goes on in in these situations amongst emergency services. They'd run the home and was talking to my partner and providing first aid guidance over the phone to him, which I didn't know because I was upstairs, and um, the girl was struggling. To breathe, and I could see she was struggling to stay conscious. So I positioned her in the best position I could, so she could breathe. And I said to her, "It's me, it's Constable Helen." And I said it to her a couple of times, and then she looked at me. Sorry, and we connected. It's a sight I'll never forget. When her eyes matched mine, and she just looked at me, I knew she knew that I was there. Anyway, I um, I positioned her, and a neighbour was there then, and I asked her to hold her in that position, and I ran out to the car and got on the radio and asked for backup, and gave a sit wrap. And then (laughs) while I was out at the car, my partner had rung upstairs to implement the first aid that he'd been provided over the phone. And I came back in and he was pressing down on the stab wounds too, as per the advice the ambulance had provided him. And I walked into the room and she was screaming her lungs out and I just thought, what the hell are you doing to this poor girl? And then he explained to me that that's what he was doing and he um, basically told me to get out of the room. He said, just go. He knew that I knew her and he said, go, go and and, and arrest the mum for me. So I went downstairs. I didn't want to leave but I knew what he was looking out for me. I went downstairs and we did everything by the book that day and arrested mum and mum wouldn't tell me exactly what she used because it was hard to decipher at the time. And then the ambulance came and they basically just grabbed her and, and took her to the hospital. Dad was out, then turned up and the media turned up at the same time and I had to tell Dad to, to go to the hospital because I just didn't know if she was going to make it to get there to hopefully see her if she didn't make it before she did pass away. Um, I was required to go in the ambulance with Mum because I was a female officer and um and I went with her, and I think it's probably one of the hardest trips I've ever had ever did in the ambulance and On the way, I could see the ambulance officers were struggling as well because the mum just kept telling us about how she had to do what she did, and she wanted to do it another way, but um, this was the only way that she could do it and end her pain and um and it was a very—it was probably the longest ten-minute ambulance ride. I think anyone could endure having to listen to that. Um, and then when I got to the hospital, I had to um, then guard her till the detectives arrived. And it was quite torturous having to listen over and over again about mum, mum telling me the same conversation about ending the girl's life. Mum had basically only had supervision when she had a couple of cuts to her arms and a a few little flicky scars on her chest, but it was nothing with real intent. And um, when the detectives arrived, I went round to see how she was, and I've never seen such chaos in an emergency room. The dedication that was going on to save her life was amazing. And... And then I left. I came back and I, I just needed some fresh air, so I went outside and and I think I, I took in the biggest breath of cold, fresh air I'd ever had and I almost could taste it. It just felt like I was suffocating having to be with mum and listen to mum. And then one of my best colleagues turned up. <laughs> she had a saunter about yeah. her, and a way that she spoke yeah. and she just looked at me and just told me to get out, Sorry, drove me back to the, um, the station. I don't recall saying anything but um, apparently we had quite a conversation and got back to the station and um, I basically sat outside and the boss came and saw me um, about 11 o'clock that day. I think I got back to the station about 1030 and told me that she hadn't made it. Um, I I think my adrenaline just kicked in and I went into overdrive.
1: Um,
2: because I was a doctor cop at the school of her year, um, which was also my daughter's year, um, there was, I don't know, there was a drive within me to go there and to look after those kids because, as you know, there's always rumours when something like this goes around and there's lots of ambulance or police or media and and the, and I wanted them to know the truth I always sent the truth better to to deal with and so I went and spoke to the boss and I asked him if I could go to the school to debrief the school and and make sure the kids were okay um I got to the school when I got to the school I think I was in shock and but I don't think I'd ever been in shock before and I was sweating and felt nauseous. I hadn't eaten that day. Um, got to the school and I debriefed the principal and the teachers. The principal really didn't know um, what to do, so I
3: organised did. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
2: To, um enacted the emergency management plan under the education department and arranged for the counsellors to come to the school. Um, the kids at the time were at lunchtime and so um, the school counsellors arrived and once they finished lunch they all came in um, to a classroom and, and told them um, the truth of what had happened and that they'd lost their friend that day. Um, it was probably one of the most horrific things I've ever had to do. It's okay, Helen. And I never want to do it again. Um, it was just a room of devastated children, about 120 children, and um, you just saw the life, the life go out of them. They just lost the honesty that children deserve to have that day. I then drove my daughter and um, her friend home because we'd arranged, well, the kids were at lunch to get as many parents to the school as possible to take the children home. And um, so I drove my daughter home and then I went back to the station to unkit and and finished my shift and... Um, I came home and when I got home, I came in the front door and I had spoken to my ex-husband that day and told and told him what had happened. And I um, walked in the door and all I wanted was a hug just to feel safe and just know that the world wasn't so fucked up, so mm-hmm. to speak. <laughs> no, Excuse my swearing. Yeah, <laughs> um, but that never happened. And at that time... I kind of felt my, um, it's a memory that probably will never leave me, I guess the best way to describe it, I think it was just too much that day for me and I kind of felt like part of me left, a bit like um, Patrick Swayze in in The Ghost. I kind of just immediately just felt empty. And then um, probably for the next few months I went to work the next day, I wrote my statement, I didn't sleep that night. I had nightmares all night. I had flashbacks of what happened and connecting with the girl that day Um, and probably for the next, I don't know, maybe six weeks. I'd wake up every morning in tears. I hadn't slept, but I'd just get on with it. I didn't take any time off work. But immediately after my rostered days off, when I came into work, I started to feel anxiety for the first time and my adrenaline running and nervous about going to um, serious incidents again and whether I'd cope and not wanting to lose my professionalism. I went into the intelligence side of things and um, and I loved it and adored it. Um, and then in about 2008, I was encouraged by my brother-in-law to go to work cover and get a diagnosis in case something happened again because I hadn't coped and my marriage did fall apart that day. Um, that day, I I knew my marriage was over, um, but that's separate to work. And um, so I did. I went to work cover and I got diagnosed with PTSD, and they told me that I was incapacitated. I think it was about twelve percent. And that I should heal over time. And essentially, that's what I was told. And I guess, like a physical injury, you just thought, I just thought, well, one day I'll be okay. But um, that's not what happens um, at all. And um, so, for years, I I guess PTSD owned me. Um, And I went to incidents after it, which kind of compounded it. And I left I ended up leaving the police service in two thousand and eleven because I just I wasn't myself and I wanted to feel laughter again. And it wasn't that I didn't enjoy the job, I loved the job. But I knew that I needed time away to to heal, and I couldn't, I wanted twelve months off leave without pay, but um it wasn't approved. So I made the choice to resign and, and go into other career um, avenues. And when I did, I um, when I left the police, I think I was the most sick I've ever been sick and it was probably just a release of, of everything. And then in about 2011, I found um, I'd been, I had emergency counselling after the event and, um, who told me I had separation anxiety um, from her being taken away from me, which I did for quite a while. Anyone who I loved would leave me. I would have heart palpitations and and have to breathe myself down and, and talk to myself and, and say, you're okay, um, though I never really told anybody that. Um, and that separation that happened to me that day for all those years, i essentially lived as I guess two there's two aspects to me where your brain just said enough and I wasn't allowed to feel anymore so when I did laugh I never felt the laughter and and whilst I might have cried you didn't actually like feel the way that I do again today Um, it was just but I think the brain has gone enough, and part of that horrible weighty feeling that you carry around with you, and the lack of clarity in, in your mind. And then in two thousand and eleven, I found a psychologist in New South Wales, who was a trauma. It was the first psychologist I spoke to that was quite specialised in trauma, and she actually pieced together what happened to me in that regard. In that it was too much for me, and my brain had. It's kind of like the flip the lid. Um, theory where your brain just shuts down and and doesn't let you develop anymore or feel anymore and your brain is just completely blurry and it just it wasn't that I couldn't do things but it just took me longer to mentally process or make decisions or or even have the energy to to do things like you know doing the washing I'd just I'd get it off the line, but then I would fold it and put it away. Just so simple day-to-day task. It was just like, yeah, it'll get done. And she pieced it together for me on, on top of what happened to me personally um, in my married life, and um, which was my first big step. And so, I actually getting that understanding of what happened to me was a huge, huge step to healing. And then I also adopted a rescue dog when he was six weeks, but actually he'd actually rescued me, (laughs) as a lot of animals do to people. And on nights when I couldn't sleep, because basically for about 12 years, I think I averaged about four or five hours sleep where you'd go to sleep for two hours and I'd wake up for three or four hours and then go back to sleep for two or three hours. Um, and it was never good sleep. He'd always jump up on my bed and lie along my back and and um, calm me to sleep. And or at the morning he'd get at the end of the bed and bite my feet. So I'd get up and and together. I think we probably walked from Perth to Sydney and back <laughs> every day. We'd walk at least ten k's. Yeah. And that fresh open air and space and the company of the dog and sometimes the music just drowning the world out. Mm. Was amazing therapy, or I guess what they call self care. And then I made the decision to move to Darwin in 2016. A job opportunity came up, and my children had grown up and left home. And I decided I needed to get away from expectations and I guess also what other, other people think. And I just wanted to heal and I wanted to go back to the work that I loved and so I I did case management in community up in the Northern Territory which I loved and I didn't work full time but I did time working in Indigenous communities with the Elders and on the court routes through there and I came across, I lost my dog Ollie in tragic circumstances and it was it was unusual because at the time when I lost him, I was absolutely devastated. But in that, he showed me in his death that I had the strength now to to move forward. And then one day, I had a really bad reaction with a friend, and I know people are like this, and they might say something and it's a trigger, and you don't know it's a trigger, and and. Um, And you become, or you talk or behave in ways that you know is not you. And it really upset me. And because I'd reached, I'd gone through a lot with the counselor I found in New South Wales and I had resolved things, but there was still that weight, there was still that um, sense of not being able to feel happy. And I basically sat down one day and, and I just researched and researched and I came across EMDR and I read about all the results that they'd had with, um, it was more with the defence personnel um, that had gone overseas, the men and women who'd served over there and suffered horrific trauma and the amazing results they'd had. And then I researched up in Darwin and I found a psychologist who was actually trained in doing it Uh, and I reached out to her and she was a brilliant not just a brilliant psychologist but also a person EMDR it's funny when you talk to people about mental health and when you have treatment and as much as we talk about it today and as much as everyone says um, you know have a conversation with it there's still that little bit of stigma that's attached to it when you talk to people and I'll talk to people about the eye desensitisation movement therapy that it involves and you still get this sense of... um, (laughs) Yeah, you do, yeah. Yeah, you you get this sense that, mm, you you kind of, I, I guess <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like someone's looking at you and, and you're in Get Smart with the, the big helmet on and the wires attached and they're going to shock you or something. <laughs> but it's not how it is. And, um, but she taught me true deep breathing techniques. She taught me relaxation techniques. um and in doing the treatment, I also had to um, work out where my safe place was, which was always in water because I always felt peace in water and it was always calm and it was always quiet. So it was at one of my favourite water holes in the Northern Territory. And essentially it's a, it's a fast eye movement and they, the psychologist sets the scene. She'd gone through all my history and all the traumatic, incidents I'd been to whether they'd been attempted suicides or and then there was things that actually popped up when I went through it Uh, and so my first session went for two hours and um, of course your bookings are only for one (laughs) and um, but the bottom line with EMDR is once you start that you've got to finish your session till you get to the end and the end is your happy place that you pick And it's amazing the power of the brain. So my brain had shut me down from feeling and in this instant the psychologist set me at the scene arriving at the house that day for the little girl and and then she started the waving movement in front of my eyes and then at the end of a certain time period, I don't know, I think it's about 30 seconds, stops and... And this continues for a period of time. And each time it stops, your brain will actually take you through to a new memory. So essentially what it does, and do not ask me (laughs) how it works, but it took me through that whole day um, to the very end. And at the time that I reached the news of the girl dying and, and, and things like that, I actually threw up twice. I reached a point that I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, My body was kind of, I can't explain it, it was like in shock and it was like anxiety and it was just like my whole body just wanted to to like explode Um, and I think it was just all that trauma finally being released and maybe my body fighting against it. And I did say to the psychologist at one point, you know, I don't think I can do this, and she just looked at me, and this is when I mean that, you know, she's a good person. She just looked at me and she just held my hand and she just said, I'm not leaving you. The power of having a professional
0: that has the empathy, the compassion, the knowledge.
2: Yeah, it was a pretty powerful moment. Yeah,
0: and knowing that the time to say that, to say to you what she said to you, like, yeah, incredible.
2: And so I stuck it out, um, and she just, and she saw me look at the clock and she just said, forget the clock, uh, you know, I've got this sorted and of course I felt horrendous because I vomited and, um, but got to the end and it was really, um, at the end it was, it was, uh, it was fascinating that each time I, I did a session of EMDR, and I think um, I think I did about five sessions, uh, my brain would take me to my home in my kitchen looking out the window because it's one of my happiest places is, is cooking with music playing. And then it would take me to a picture of my daughter and my son together, but it wasn't an actual picture. It was more like a Brady Bunch Archie sketch kind of picture of yeah. them and then I would be um, at my safe place. So my brain, brain walked me right through that and however it works, it then stores that stores those horrific memories. Um, that whole weekend, so I essentially made the decision, I gave up three months of my life and just dedicated every other weekend to, to doing, to committing to this. That weekend I I couldn't move. I vomited driving home again and um, I was basically a vegetable that weekend because I just had nothing left in me. I was just physically and mentally exhausted. From that day on and your brain is actually when you're doing DMR that for the next 24 hours, your brain is actually quite buzzy, so to speak. Um, so I actually slept that night, but then the second night after my first treatment, I slept for three um, sorry, for nine hours every night for three weeks without waking up. And I hadn't slept like that for 13 or 14 years. And now today, that's just standard practice for me. And as time went on, and then I remember one day, after I finished the treatment and and going through all the different traumas that had stacked, because essentially what had happened is, because I, pardon, and I think this is probably familiar to other people, is because I'd suffered such a significant shock on one day. The memory doesn't get stored, and and so when your memory doesn't get stored, it stays on the surface, and and your emotions are, are very raw and each subsequent traumatic event not just a normal um like if someone had passed away that was just normal life but if it was actual trauma it would stack on top and hence how ptsd and and those feelings get worse and and they compound and so you don't actually store those memories is what i've learned and they stay and that's why people do get worse and people find it harder and harder to struggle and harder to understand. And then about three months after I'd finished, I remember waking up one day and I just felt happy, um, like it was in my gut and I just went, wow. And and it just kept getting better over, you know, probably 18 months or even two years I just kept improving in my capacity to process things, to do things, to cope, and just I lost the weight. There's no weight anymore on me, and I'm a happy person. <laughs> so all that pain and, and giving up three months and working through that, as horrific as it was, it's... It is so worth doing. Um, and I get three months is a very short time to get all this back and to be able to enjoy your family and friends the way you do again.
0: And you know, it is true. And I, for the listeners, I've never heard that story. I knew Helen had a horrific story, but I've never heard that before. And I think it's even more important for people. Um, to realise that no matter how bad, and I I don't know how it could get any worse than what you experienced, Helen, but you can, you can, you can't move on, but you can learn to manage. And I think what you've uh, told us today, it wasn't, it didn't happen quickly. As you say, it happened, there was a lot of pain uh, and a lot of trauma, but as you said, you've got to the point now where you can feel happy. I mean, oh, it, it, that EMDR that you were talking about, Helen. I've done EMDR myself. I didn't have uh, the the reaction that you did, but I I yeah. also felt EMDR is not for everybody, and that's you acknowledged that at the start. But it sounds it sounds yeah. to me like you you just read you ridded yourself, your body of all that um, trauma by being sick. And the only, as you said, the only way that you can do that is to deal with it and as painful as it was, look at where it, it's got you now. Uh, just Definitely. incredible. Helen, there's a, there's so many questions there. Uh, but thank you for uh, taking us through that. I think it gives... An unbelievable insight into, yet again, the, the experiences that police have. Okay, we're going to leave it there with Helen for today. Isn't she just the most amazing lady? We'll play part two next week, which is just as incredible, fascinating, maybe harrowing, as this week. But Helen has such a positive message about mental health, so please tune in next week for part two. Until then, take care. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya.